It is silly to try to escape other people's faults. They're inescapable. Just try to escape your own. Those are the words of Marcus Aurelius from his book Meditations. Meditations is probably the only document of its kind ever made. It's a collection of the private thoughts of the world's most powerful man, giving advice to himself on how to make good on the responsibilities and obligations of his position. The great emperor stopped almost every night to practice a series of spiritual exercises, reminders designed to make him humble, patient, empathetic, generous and strong in the face of everything he was dealing with. Marcus Aurelius was all of those things and more. We're back with another episode of Blind History. I'm sitting here with Anthony Medera, Marcus Aurelius. So Marcus Aurelius, a lot of people don't know. Who is Marcus Aurelius? Well, these statements you see on Instagram, mm -hmm. um, your fridge magnets. You mean yeah. those pictures on Instagram you see with like a sunset exactly, a beach, and then there are words written there? 100%. And That's some millennials you know, copied them from somewhere and thought that they sounded original. And this is a Roman emperor stuck on the Danube in the middle of winter in 160 uh, A.D., Unbelievable. And, and that's where that's where a lot of this wisdom comes that's from. That's all where it comes from. And he never looked for a life of luxury. And he never wanted to be a warrior, but it's what he had to do, he said. And he was an incredible warrior. He didn't even want to be emperor. Um, uh. In fact, when he was adopted by Antoninus Pius, who was asked to adopt him by the former emperor, Hadrian, he was quite sad. Everybody I know would have been happy to have been adopted by a guy who was going to be emperor and have your grandfather, your adopted grandfather, as the current emperor. Who wouldn't want that? Ancient Rome, one of the greatest civilizations of all time. Uh, he was sad. He actually stayed in his room. He didn't want to move. And then he very reluctantly packed up his stuff and went to live with the emperor. But just to put into perspective quickly of, of why he's such an important emperor – it's because um, after his death, that was the beginning of the end for the, at least the Western Roman Empire. But Marcus Aurelius' time marked the end of the five good emperors, and he was one of them. And to put it into perspective, what happened, Hadrian, who was, was an out-and-out -out warrior, he spent most of his life on the road fighting wars. He basically consolidated the empire and he was the one that built all the walls. So we have Hadrian's Wall in, in, in uh, separate southern England from northern England. And he basically settled and structured what Trajan had done, the greatest extent that the Roman Empire would ever be. But Hadrian got to an age. And what's so important for the Romans, if you know, power vacuum is the worst thing you can have. Mm. Even more than having a psychotic emperor, which there are many of them. Yeah, um, regular and all of Commodus them. and Elagabalus and all of them. And yeah. Nero. So anyway, just to, without laboring on this point, so, so Hadrian needed to find a successor. And he was enamored with, since he saw this young boy, uh, Marcus Aurelius, he's, he felt he's destined for great things. But he had to work out how to get Marcus to an age that he could take over as an emperor. So he brought in um, an old stalwart of the Senate to take over, but this person promptly died. Then he selected uh, Lucius Verus, the senior, and he he promptly also died. So he was really he was really struggling. So finally he settled on 
Antoninus Pierce. Antoninus Pierce. He was called uh, Pierce in the end because of the way he basically kicked the cans down the road during his tenure. But but now, in all intents and purposes, he was going to pass away quite soon. And and around early 20s, Marcus would take his rightful place as emperor of Rome. But Antoninus lived, or he ruled for 23 years, which is really unexpected. I'm sure Hadrian didn't really want that to happen. (laughs) So that's where, where, so Marcus only came later and he only ruled for 19 years. Yeah, um, he did have some of the responsibilities while Antoninus Pierce was in charge, right? Correct. Yes. So Antoninus, definitely, he was he was basically co-ruling with without actually saying as such. So, you you mentioned that he's the last of the five good emperors, and he was also the last emperor of the Pax Romana, which is this period of ancient history where there was more or less peace. There weren't any major wars. People were living like good neighbors. Kind of the only time since then. Since the end of Marcus Aurelius's rule, um, that we've lived like that is probably now. Um, ever since and between, it's pretty much been war and killing and violence and just humans Chaos. behaving badly. But once but, again, I would talk to the point of, of what makes this man so great. So Antonian, he ruled exactly like you said. It was absolute peace. There wasn't even a war. There was a skirmish here and there. Mm. When Marcus came to power… The first thing he needed, one year in, he needed to sort out the Parthians that started getting uppity. So let's just put in, in a very brief summary before we get to that particular battle. He had war. He had famine. Famine created from the biggest flood the Tiber's ever had. That's right. And, and plague. And plague. Massive plague. They, they, they're surmising at smallpox, but it destroyed 30% of the population. So it's Five million Romans. It's incredible. I didn't know it was that number. I mean, in those days, that was a large swathe of your of your population and territory. And you lose that many people, that creates a bit of a yeah. vacuum. So he co-ruled with Lucius Verus, but Ver- he, he was a, uh, Lucius Verus was a completely different character. Partying, gambling, drinking hard. But he was always looking at the best in Lucius, so he sent him to fight the battle in, in the east. And a little particular story came out. The governor, who was also the general of Armenia for the Romans, was now starting to get heat from the Parthians. Mm-hmm. So there was another gentleman by the name of Alexandria, but not not Alexander, but not the one the famous Alexander. Mm-hmm. He was an orator and a spiritual teacher of that time, and he had a pet python. <laughs> that and apparently this gave you virility and all that. So, uh-huh. but this was as popular a sect or, or as popular a religion as Christianity was at that point. And so the, so the governor of, of Armenia listened to this Alexander because Alexander said, you're going to be fine. You don't even need to take many legions with you. You're going to destroy them. So he went in and he got absolutely murdered. <laughs> he, then he committed suicide because of the, the embarrassment of it all. So that was Marcus Aurelius's inauspicious start to his reign was losing both battles, actually. On the Eastern Front, he lost both major battles. Wow, not a great start. Yeah. No, and it took time. He had to bring people from the east, from the north, um, to try and sort all the problems out. He um, he was he was also well known for changing the currency. Like he took the the silver denarius, and he first in the beginning of his reign because they needed to pay all of the troops. Um, so at the beginning, when you're inaugurated as emperor, you have to give money to the troops to assure them. That you're their emperor and that you can pay them and so that they give you their loyalty in return. And in order to do that, he had to devalue the denarius. So he took out, I think, three or four percent of the silver from the actual denarius. And then later on in his reign, he restored it back to, I think, 
what it was meant to be, 83% silver or whatever it was. But he's well known for that too. Um, he was known for the persecution of Christians, although a lot of people say that wasn't necessarily the emperor's prerogative. By that stage, persecution of Christians was a sport for everybody, and it was usually devolved upon the smaller, more local authorities. So, you know, how many Christians are we going to kill in the arena today? Mm. Eh, about 40 or 50. Ah, let's up it to 60. Let's give the people something to watch. It might not have been the emperor himself that got involved. In but it, it was exasperated by the plague. Yeah. Because they well, were, they, so they used the gods. As they said, no, we need to, the gods are angry with us. You've so got to do something. And he kill was also, some Christians. Yeah, exactly. So, so he was Pontifex. Pontif <laughs> Maximus. Maximus, which is preceding. High priest, the, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The high priest. And so he had to do something. And then obviously the, the soft target, because the, the Christians, they refused to go and kill a lamb and, and yeah. you know, whatever they needed to do. So, so then they were just, they just killed. So that, they killed them. Yeah. Yeah. Not a great time for Christians. Not at Probably all. not their finest hour in that first hundred or two hundred years after Jesus. Um, there's still a column and an equestrian statue to him in Rome. In fact, the only reason that they say the equestrian statue survived has also to do with the Christians. Because the Christians thought it was Constantine who they liked because mm. he was the first Christian emperor. And they confused Constantine and Marcus Aurelius, so they saved the statue, even though it was obviously of a guy who later on they probably wouldn't have liked if they'd found out that he was also responsible for the persecution. But it's brilliant because it's a bronze statue of him and a horse, and it's magnificent in its detail. And it shows in his facial expression that this is a man who was very dutiful and very serious and found the weight of being emperor to be very heavy. And that breaks a little bit from classical sculpture because you don't normally show facial expression. Mm. And in this one, it kind of lets you in on the character of the guy too, almost as much as his meditations. Yeah, the meditations was a was a was a game changer. If we could just look at some of what he said, mm. so one of them was, "I have often wondered how it is that every man loves himself more than all the rest of men, but yet sets less value on his own opinion of himself than on the opinion of others." Oh. And he's sitting, like I said to you earlier, sitting on a, in the middle of winter, freezing cold on the Danube. And he's had such personal heartache. He lost twins. You know, in those days, they um, they lost a lot of children. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of children in childbirth. And you can actually see the pain in the writings. You know, if you read meditations, you see the pain in his writings and how much he loved his family. I think he had 13 or more kids with his wife, Faustina, and only four of them outlived him. Yes. Which is pretty hardcore. Um, he was also well known for legal reforms. He was a big proponent of free speech. And during their combined reign, he and Lucius Ferris, they didn't persecute anybody for criticizing him. In fact, there were poets and comedians who used to make fun of the emperors all the time. And they allowed it. In fact, they were very tolerant to criticism, which was extraordinary for those times. People didn't do that. Yeah. They didn't like being told that they were wrong or that they were the object of ridicule. Um, one other interesting thing I found out is that they made contact with the Chinese during his reign. Oh, I didn't know that. Huh? Yeah. Um, Marcus Aurelius was, uh, he sent an ambassador to the Han court of China. H-A-N, not H-U-N. Those Huns are not Roman friends, yeah. but the, yes. the Han Chinese uh, emperor. And they, they resumed trade. They've even found coins in Vietnam with uh, Marcus Aurelius's visage on them. That's pretty impressive. That is impressive. That's oh, very shows impressive. shows you how far Roman influence extended. Yeah. Look, I still, he was still ruling over the largest extent, the greatest that the Roman Empire had been. But I think after that, the barbarians started, they're starting to make their presence felt because it was very, very difficult. What that did was 
their strategy was skirmishes. So if you look at the Roman legions, they're very well organized, drilled, and they would come in with little skirmishes. And then people start, and when you're walking through the forest, they'd hit them, kill 10 or 20 uh, legionnaires. Then a little bit later, while they're in, in the camp, kill another five. And it really destabilized them. So he had to go and eradicate that. But that was when, when I mentioned earlier the beginning of the end because he did a very, very good job in stopping the leak of the barbarians. But ultimately, he couldn't stop it. I mean, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And, and then finally, the barbarians sacked Rome again. Mm. You know, and so that was the biggest challenge. And then, then the, the Gareth, the plague was just massive. Five million Romans. And you need in those days, if, and in any day, you need uh, those people are paying taxes. Mm. So the whole economy crashed, and w- with all the plagues, it, it even took nobles. And it, uh, his his brother Lucius mm. died of the plague, and ultimately he succumbed to the plague at the age yeah. of fifty nine. Yeah, um, he is supposed to have have died in Vienna in the year one hundred and eighty, and he was buried in Hadrian's mausoleum with all of his uh, contemporaries, and. He was deified, so he was, he was made a god in his, in his death. But there's an interesting thing that Cassius Dio, who's probably the best historian of the time, wrote about him. Marcus did not meet with the good fortune that he deserved, for he was not strong in body and was involved in a multitude of troubles throughout practically his entire reign. But for my part, I admire him all the more for this very reason, that amid unusual and extraordinary difficulties, he both survived himself and preserved the empire. Just one thing prevented him from being completely happy, namely that after rearing and educating his son, Commodus, in the best way, he was vastly disappointed in him. This matter must be our next topic, for our history now descends from a kingdom of gold to one of iron and rust, as affairs did for the Romans of that day. So that being the last great emperor. Mm. That actually sums it up beautifully. Just, yeah, it's just very, very sad. Um, just one last thing that was said about him by Herodian, and I think this is so sweet because it's, and by sweet, I don't mean sweet as in, ah, oh, you know, ah, oh, cute. I mean, sweet as in just tastes good. It, it, for me, speaks of character. He said that he was a blameless character and he had temperate ways and he was the father of stoicism in some ways because of that. And by Herodian writing that, I think there are very few people in the ancient world who could be called blameless. Well, that's incredible. Yeah. Oh. Self-restraint. That really worked in self-restraint. So you could have peace of heart. Beautiful. Thanks for listening to this episode of Blind History, brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. This is CliffCentral.com.